The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. As always, you got Pastor Nate and Chris. Um, and today we have a very special guest that we are delighted about. It's pastor and author Douglas Wilson here to speak to us about uh, a whole bunch of different things. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We'll get through the housekeeping really quick so we can maximize our time with Pastor Doug. But um, we are the Re- uh, Rebel Podcast. We are part of the Reformed Rebel Network. You can find us on social media and uh, you can find all of our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts by looking up Reformed Rebel Network. There's the Awakening Reformation Podcast with Grant and Erica Van Brimmer. We have the uh, Podcast for Cultural Reformation uh, coming out of the Ezra Institute with Dr. Joe Boot. And uh, Matt and Nick out in Manitoba uh, doing the Great Exchange. And uh, so that's our, our lineup. And we are thrilled to have um, Pastor Doug Wilson. For any of, uh, any of you who listen to us, ought to also be listening to Doug quite frequently. He is the podcast host of the Plodcast, um, author of, uh, innu- I, I would say, innumerable books. But more than I care to mention right now, but uh, lots of wonderful books. He blogs at DougWills.com and is the pastor at Christ Church in Moscow, Moscow, Idaho. I think you corrected me in my pronunciation right. last time. Yeah, no cow in Moscow. Yeah. So, so thanks so much. Usually we say thanks for joining us from down there, but uh, I recently discovered that the chimney in Idaho is actually further north than we are in southwestern Ontario. Uh, that is correct. So, um, uh, so you're no stranger to the cold and the snow? No, no stranger to it. <laughs> Um, so we have Doug on with us today, and, and we want to talk about No Quarter November. Uh, so every year you guys do No, no Quarter November, uh, and uh, it's put on, I think, by, by Canon Press. You guys have a lot of giveaways. So tell our listeners who might not be familiar with the term No Quarter November uh, what it was that you did about just over a month ago. Okay, we just finished the, um, at the conclusion of this last November our third annual uh, No Quarter November. Uh, and we started it uh, three years ago because uh, we noticed that uh, when I write something outrageous, at least as far as the PC cops are concerned, uh, they generally ignore uh, all the qualifications or the nuances that I try to surround it with. You know, I, I'll say, you know, I, I believe the apostle, everything the Apostle Paul ever wrote about headship and submission and marriage. But and I call it my second paragraph rule. Uh, in my second paragraph, even though sometimes I put it elsewhere, um, please don't take me as arguing that women are idiots or that uh, men should run them as like puppets or, you know, all the standard misrepresentations of the biblical position. And I'll qualify. Basically, I'll, I'll qualify. Uh, so so the people don't write me off as having three heads and, 
you know, drooling out of two of them. Uh, and, um, but I've noticed that when, no matter how reasonable you are on qualifying and anticipating, our adversaries frequently just ignore all of that and just blow, blow right by it. So we decided three years ago, suppose for a whole month, I, I just wrote what I thought and I didn't qualify anything. I, I just said it, <laughs> you know, said it out loud. And I didn't have that second paragraph anywhere in the, in the post and just gave everybody the unvarnished truth. Well, we did that three years ago and it was actually a big uh, hit. Um, so I blogged that way for a month and Canon Press gave away a bunch of books and, you know, it was a, it was a good uh, promotional thing that we did uh, for our ministry here. It was very successful. And so we did it again the next year and we just finished this third year. Now, the problem with this last year is that 2020 was the year when everything else went nuts. Right. And one one reader uh, said, you know, it used to be that in November, Doug Wilson would say these outrageous things. But this year, it seemed like a postcard from the beach from Aunt Judy. You know, it was <laughs> like, it just, it just fit right in. Right. It just fit right into all the crazy. I, I will say for any of our listeners who haven't sort of, uh, who don't look forward to November every year like we do, the first year you did no quarter November, you sat on a couch and set it on fire and, and kind of set up the whole thing. And, uh, and then the year after you set a field on fire, presumably the field that the couch was sitting in the first year. And then well, connect the, the same property. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then this year you got into the car, the truck rather that you presumably drove to the couch in year one and you set that on yeah. fire. So right. the, the question is um, what are you going to set on fire next year? We, that, that problem has occurred to us. We went from a couch to a field, to a, a Ford pickup and, and maybe a house. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You don't um, have to disclose well, whether or not that's your property, but uh, the, yeah, the image yeah, of, of what your wife will let you burn down on the property is. Uh, yeah, we honestly, we, we know we have to do something and we don't honestly know just yet what that's going to be. The way it's going, it might be the White House, to be honest with you. Just like, <laughs> light that on fire, turn it all over. So um, so in November, you you sort of uh, it, it's no holds barred. It's uh, it's it's the right. and it's it's taken on a very piratey theme of uh, sort of Doug Wilson, the, the swashbuckler uh, coming out and, and telling everybody how it is. Um, right. And I guess uh, part of the question, so you've said that it's been successful in terms of the traffic through the sites, the amount of readership on the blog, all that kind of stuff. Right. So the question is, um, why do you do it one, one month a year if it's so successful? And why 11 months of the year right. do, you, do you still put in the second paragraph? Just help us, help us uh, kind of wrap our minds right. around what you're trying to accomplish with No Quarter November and why it's still a November thing as opposed to the new unleashed Doug Wilson. Well, it, it may well get to the point where we just say the heck with it and go November all year long. Yeah. But one of the things that's happening is a lot of people, there are a lot of new people who have been attracted to the ministry and are reading the blog now. And, um, and, and in the first couple of years, when I left out the second paragraph, so to speak, mm -hmm. most of my regular readers were in a position to write the second paragraph for me. Yeah. 
you know, they they know what I would say. They know how it, how I would anticipate objections. But I want to make sure that uh, that however we fight and we really want to fight all the new people coming on board, a number of them might be beyond exasperated. And I don't want to attract people like Jesus rebukes some of his disciples in Luke when they want to call down fire from heaven and burn right. the Samaritan village. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you are of. And so uh, I think we're, I honestly believe that we're getting close to the point of a societal or cultural meltdown, not excluding the possibility of shooting. Right. Yep. I, I, I think we're in a, uh, I think we're in a dire situation and in, in circumstances like that, I want to make sure that we're not attracting the wrong sort. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, that's really helpful. I mean, in a year where I feel like we've hit the fast forward button in terms of the, um, the chasm between ideologies, um, right. po po politics, everything. And I mean, I think the last time we had you on, we talked about the myth of neutrality, that there is no neutral, yeah. but what seems to have happened is neutral, quote unquote, neutral spaces have been taken away. It used to be that a Democrat and a Republican could sit down and both cheer for the bills or, or right. whatever football team they're a part of. But now, you know, sports has been politicized movies, you know, award shows, all of this stuff. And so immediately everybody is running their flags up the mast and it seems like right. there's this giant divide. When that happens, do you think that there is a, a greater need for the, the kind of rhetoric that's, um, that's no quartered? Yeah, I do. Uh, because, well, I, I'll put it this way. There, there never has been neutrality, which means that all the, um, uh, pre, all the pretend neutrality in the middle was just that. It was a, it was a pretense. Right. There's never genuine neutrality. I think what we're approaching now is what Cornelius Van Til uh, called epistemological self-consciousness, where mm -hmm. the, the two sides know that they are the two sides. And it used to be that the people on the hard left knew where they were, and the Christians largely occupied a muddled middle. Right. But now the Christians who are remaining Christians are epistemologically self-conscious about their commitments. Scripture, God, creation, nature. Yep. Um, and the those on the left are self-conscious, epistemologically self-conscious about where they're coming from. And I think it's decreasingly possible to, to try to bridge the chasm or try to be uh, somewhere, somewhere in the middle. And I, I think that anything that hastens that I don't mean viciousness or malice, but anything that accelerates clarity, um, I think is good. So, I mean, uh, I, I agree with you that sort of the, the middle is disappearing. And I agree with you that the, the facade of neutrality is what's falling all around us, not uh, actual neutrality, because that doesn't exist. But so what would you say to all of the church members, family members, pastors who are watching families get torn apart 
and churches torn apart with all of the divisive things going on this year. Where do you stand on racial relations? Do you wear a mask or do you not wear a mask? You know, do what do you think about the coronavirus and how deadly is it and how fearful should we be and and what does loving your neighbor look like? I mean, we can go on and on with all of the wonderful things that 2020 has given us as examples for divisive topics. Um, right. Those people who are standing in the middle trying to hold everything together, what would you say to them? Is that a fool's errand? Yeah, I think it largely is. Um, I, and some people are conscientiously trying to keep an old order or what they thought was an old order together. But uh, Jesus says that he didn't come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. And when moments like that descend upon a society, you can't, you, you can't by wishing make it all go away. Right. Uh, right. It's not. So Christian above all Christian pastors need to be committed to the truth first, not, not basically it's not peace first. And then we'll find some truth if we can get it. It's got to be the truth first. What is actually true? What is actually the case? Right. And, uh, and we have to be committed to, to that. And that's going to lead to the only peace worth having. And would you say that the, um, the the effort that you and your ministry and many of the people who have come out of your ministry, um, you know, who involve themselves in things like No Quarter November, um, would you say that that's what's driven the popularity over the last couple of years? I mean, um, you know, there's there whether it's uh, the cross politic guys, and I know they're not your media wing. I, I know that's been yeah. a, I know that's been a, an accusation, but um, you know, certainly guys. They're part, been, of, they're, they're part of the same culture. We're right. We're coming exactly. out of the same. Yeah. And and so and and it's I mean the popularity over the last couple of years has been astronomical in terms of the amount of people who are it seems like looking. And so my question is, is that, is that you, what you think is attracting them is, is the sort of unvarnished truth in a world where everybody wants to nuance everything. Yeah. When, 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 if you are, uh, let's say you're just an average Christian husband and father, you've got three kids somewhere in the Midwest and everywhere you turn, people are speaking in subtleties and nuance and it's all pastels you don't know what that person telling talking to you actually thinks right, right. Um, and one of one of the advantages of a no quarter vibe if you want to put it that way is if i'm talking to someone uh, by the end of that conversation they will know what i believe they're they're not going to have to guess yep right what does he actually think let's say i'm talking to a black um christian and I'm talking to him about race relations. Um, there's a vast difference between me telling him what I, I believe and me telling him what I think he wants to hear. Right. Definitely. And uh, and a lot of uh, there there are a lot of Christians who have been flattered and cajoled and um, uh, manipulated, really, by politically correct speech from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. And they, they don't they don't hear a thus saith the Lord at all. And uh, or they don't even hear what they know the preacher believes to be a thus saith the Lord. Right. So basically speaking with conviction, dogmatically with conviction, 
This is the authoritative word of God. This is what would have been true had I never been born. Yep. That kind of, that kind of clar- clarity resonates with a lot of people who've just had it up to here with uh, soft speech in the name of Jesus. Doug, how how uh, how culpable would you say the church has been to getting us to this point in society? Because I heard you preach on uh, twenty one reasons why people get Romans thirteen wrong, and one of the things you said was uh, quoting Adrian Kuyper. You said uh, a society can't be put into slavery without being culpable, like part of it. Um, how culpable right. would you say the church is to where we've gotten to now with this with all this stuff? Uh, very. I, I think the, the church has been um, complicit in a bunch of this. So I, I don't think this is something that has uh, been superimposed on us by aliens from outer space. Um, we've, been, we've been players all along. And I think it goes back to the first half of the 19th century, actually, um, where the church began to drift, the North American church began to drift and then acceleratingly drifting and then rebelling against our reformed heritage where we just um, abandoned what the Bible said and started embracing what Jesus words made us feel. And then we constructed, and then we constructed a Jesus idol who is very, very, very nice. He's just a nice person. And, and we turned that Jesus idol into our sky buddy. And, and then we found out that sky buddies don't deliver. They, they can't deliver you. Right. It, it reminds me of, uh, of Isaiah when he's talking about, you know, fashioning uh, idols out of the same wood that you're building a fire with and, uh, yeah. you know, car- carrying off your idols. And, uh, and it, you know, later on in Isaiah, he would talk about, the, you know, the God of heaven, whose right hand is strong to save. So the idea is you either carry your idols or your, or you, you know, you carry your gods or your God can carry you. Um, And, uh, and so you, I think you would sum that up by simply saying we, we have lost touch of who God really is and Mm -hmm. fashioned an idol in our own minds. One that's more palpable to the people we are trying to evangelize and then in doing so, we've become slaves to our idol. Right. And then when someone, let's say a minister rebukes um, a false teacher sharply, which yep. the Bible says to do, Paul says, rebuke them sharply. Yep. I'm sure it's a command, rebuke them sharply. And let's say that a, a preacher rebukes a false teacher sharply and two thirds of his congregation say that wasn't very nice. Well, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't supposed to be. I didn't want it to be nice. Right. Uh, it was supposed to be sharp. <laughs> it was supposed to be sharp. Well, no, and then you can see them appealing to their idol. But the Jesus I serve right. is nice. Well, yeah, but that's not the Jesus in the Gospels. Right. The the Jesus in the Gospels picked fights. Absolutely. How much, how much pushback do you get? Uh, you're a fairly well-known pastor. So how much pushback do you get from other local pastors? Um, you don't need to name names, but other big name pastors. Like um, I know in our context, even just being a, like a layman and obviously Pastor Nate, um, we get pushback all the time for saying 
things about like other people um, in terms of the uh, other pastors. So I'm, I'm assuming you get tons of flack. Yeah. So I would say um, I get lots of flack from uh, on, in my Twitter feed. There are people who take shots at me all the time, but usually I'll click on the icon and they have 10 followers or, you know, that sort of thing. So the, the, the people who, and, and so I don't bother to answer those, the strategy of the people, the big name, we call it big Eva um, yep. with a handful of exceptions. What big Eva is trying to do is ignore me out of existence. They, they don't want to give me the microphone. So we've been, we've been under an embargo here in Moscow for a number of years. And actually going back to the introduction, one of the things that we wanted to do with No Quarter November was to make enough of a splash that it would help us run the embargo uh, so, that so that people would be able to find us and start reading our stuff, start mm -hmm. getting our books without getting permission from the big conference circuit speakers. Yeah. Well, and it, it's interesting because... Um, you know, whenever our church has taken a, a hard stand on whether it is, you know, what the Bible says about human sexuality or what's going on politically or whatever, um, it, it's always the surrounding Christians that seem to mm -hmm. get the most upset about that. And so right. when we're talking about being piratey and no quartery, um, what is your strategy for them? And, and what I mean by that is, so you might be attracting all of these, um, these young, restless and reformed types who want to hear a hard truth because they heard all about postmodernism in their post-secondary and it really screwed them up. And they mm -hmm. like somebody who will tell it to them straight. What's the strategy? Is it the same strategy or is it a different strategy when you think about how do you coax? How do you teach? How do you, how do you win people to your side who are part of that? whether they're, they are big Eva or they're just the, the, the gospel coalition, faithful blog readers. Um, right. how, where do you find that balance between being hard nosed and saying the hard things and trying to be winsome and winning to the people that you, you quite honestly want on your side because you believe you're speaking truth correctly. Right. I, I believe that in the moment we're in, our responsibility is to uh, explain what's going on, articulate the truth, attract as many people to an understanding of that truth as we can. And that's going to cause collisions. And I think of when Samson had some of his first run-ins with the Philistines, some of the Israelites came to him and said, Samson, what are you doing? Don't you know that the Philistines are, are running the show? Don't, what are you, aren't, you're going to get us in trouble. So that, that, that is what I think is happening with what you might call the establishment conservative reformed evangelical world. I think that a bunch of them are already compromised and are basically um, liberals pretending to be evangelicals. I think a bunch of them are already compromised. I think, but I also believe that a bunch of them are um, uh, good, good guys who, when it comes down to the point and they have to choose, are going to break the right way. They just didn't want to make me, they, they just didn't want to have me make them choose three years earlier than they thought was going to happen. Right. They're, They're waiting for they better, want, better conditions to come out in. Right. They, they, they didn't want some renegade from Idaho 
to be bringing everything to a head. Right. So, so but when it all comes down, you know, when it all comes down to it, I believe that there will be a number of name evangelicals who stand faithfully. Right. Yep. But I, um, but I don't think they're ready to yet. And I think that, it, and this is the way it usually goes in times of crisis and reformation. Some people see early what the play is and they're, and they start articulating it. It's like, uh, um, and you say, well, all the examples I would come up with are flattering to me. Right. But, but that's what, that's why I see, I, this is just how I see it. Yep. So Winston, Winston Churchill was calling out Hitler years before anybody else was ready to face facts. Right. Right. Yep. So uh, I, I, and, but then when, when Churchill finally becomes prime minister, the England that was ignoring his warnings for a decade was the England that fought faithfully. Mm. Right. They yep. should, if they'd listened to him earlier, it, they might've even headed off the war. If they, listened to him earlier, the war could have been a lot shorter. Right. But they eventually did listen to him and they, they stood. So, um, I think there'd be a lot of Christians in our churches and Christians on the, on the internet and, um, some of the big Eva crowd that you're talking about who, um, are sitting back, and I'm sure you've heard this as much as I have, waiting for the right battle, right? right. Um, and, and the phrase we keep hearing is that's not a hill to die on, right? The time to fight will come, but it's not yet. Um, and, and then here we are, you know, in 2020, um, in the middle of a lockdown or whatever, the church is, is outlawed from meeting. Um, how, how would you say... Clearly, we're not picking our battles well, and clearly, right. by the time we say it's time to fight, it's too late. So, how do we how do we identify battles earlier? How do we know which hills die on without being people who are always looking for a fight? Yeah, you don't want to be pugnacious. Going back to what I said earlier, right. where Jesus rebuked his disciples for not knowing what spirit they were of. So yeah. that's the first thing. You don't want to be a belligerent person. Who will fight anybody about anything right. and i need to kill something and i'm a shepherd so wolves will do um <laughs> because i've got uh, because i've got this uh, bloodlust right right so i don't i don't want to do that uh and and i also don't want to forget that we are christians meaning that we are followers of the one who picked the absolute worst hill to die on mm. which is golgotha right, right? Um, and Peter tried to stop him. That, right. Lord, that, yeah. that's not a hill to die on. Uh, <laughs> no, that's the that's the hill that the prophets foretold. That's the, that's the hill that God prophesied centuries ago yeah. was going to be the hill to die on. So uh, there's a great comment that Herbert Schlossberg makes. I'm not sure if it's in his Idols for Destruction or not, uh, but I've quoted it a number of times where the kingdom of God is the history of the kingdom of God is the history of one triumph after another, all of them cleverly disguised as disasters. <laughs> uh, that's God's, uh, that's God's camouflage, right? That's, that's how God works it. Yeah. So uh, uh, God, I, I've, I'm fond of saying this, God loves 
cliffhangers. Um, if you read through the scripture, uh, you know, he waits until Abraham is up on the mountain with the knife in the air and he's about to kill Isaac and he then he stops him. And then it becomes a proverb on the mount of the Lord with the knife in the air, it will be provided. God, God loves to intervene at just that moment. So then Moses brings the people out to the banks of the Red Sea. So there's a million or more Israelites standing there on the banks of the, this deep sea. Yeah. And they look behind them and they see Pharaoh's chariots coming. And here's the water. And not one person in, in 100,000 in that group would have anticipated that within a short space of time, all those chariots were going to be at the bottom of that water. Right? That's, that's, that was not in the cards. On the Mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Yeah. And Moses says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He tells the same thing. Uh, Jehoshaphat says, is given the same thing. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Then David is running from Saul. And David's on one side of the mountain. And Saul's on the other side of the mountain. And just at that moment, the Philistines invaded. So God is a big believer in just-in-time delivery. He, he loves to bring us down to the moment so that we can trust him, trust him, trust him, trust him. Here it is. And we oftentimes feel like it's going to be just after the nick of time, right? Uh, the, the reinforcements will show up after I've been martyred. Uh, well, sometimes believers are martyred, but yeah. frequently believers are delivered. Um, and that's how God does it. So Paul says, we despaired of life so that we might trust in the God who raises the dead. All right, that, that's what God wants to teach us. This looks, as I look at this geopolitically, politically, culturally, when I look at the, at the hash that we've made of our culture, I don't see any conceivable solution, right? There's no, there's no way out. And that means it's time for God to move. Right. So as we, as we think about um, uh, forging ahead, waging war, knowing that not everybody uh, who ought to be fighting with us is fighting with us, um, how, how do you do that with the grumblers in the back talking about how much better it was in Egypt? Right. So you have you have you have churches who, you know, uh, you know, John MacArthur, who made a, a, a good bold stand in uh, in California as, as all of the other churches are shutting down and he opens back up. And I'm sure I mean, I don't have John on speed dial, um, but uh, I'm sure he would tell me all kinds of emails that their elders got about why church should be shut down and why they shouldn't be doing that and all kinds of naysayers in the back. How do you how do you propose uh, Christians who see the fight, see it clearly, and want to engage, deal with those naysayers? Do you just ignore them, and if they're of us, they'll come with us, and if they're not, they'll be out from us because they were never of us? How do you how do you yeah, deal with them? If they're with us, they will come with us eventually. There's going to be a break point. And there's going to be a break point where absolutely everybody in the world knows that this is the break point. Yep. Up to the up to that break point, there there's room for debate. There are people who say, "I don't think this is the time yet." I I think that you're being premature. 
I don't, you know, I'm not sure that this is the right time. You cannot, you cannot lead people without there always being a contingent that says you're making the wrong call, right? That's just, that's just part of the cost of leadership. If you say now's the moment, you, you've got that responsibility because you know in, at two in the morning when you're praying and thinking about this, you know that you might make the wrong call. You, you, right, that's the weight of responsibility of leadership. And then you've got people telling you over and over again, "I think this is the wrong call. I think you're being foolhardy. I think you're this is premature. Why don't we wait a little bit? Uh, why don't we wait a little bit longer?" Said the frog in the boiling pot. Right. <laughs> um, so that's the that is the situation. That's the circumstance. Um, one of the things that Jesus points out. It's it's not just the naysayers, it's the persecutors and the naysayers who are on your side, and then the faithful band, right? Uh, So Jesus says, even the enemies of God will build and and maintain the the tombs of the prophets, right? Yep. Jesus says the tombs of the prophets, uh, the fact that these people build tombs to the prophets is proof positive that they're descended from the people who killed the prophets, right? <laughs> right. So um, if that's the case, I would argue a fortiori, how much more will be the good guys who were perhaps a little faint-hearted, right? Yep. Uh, good guys, heart in the right place. When it finally comes down to it, they will rally to Gideon and, you know, Ephraim shows up, right? Yep. Kind of ticked off that Gideon <laughs> didn't call them earlier. Yeah. Um, well, you could argue different, you don't have it in the text, but maybe you did call them earlier and they didn't want to come then. Right. Right. But after after there's a great victory, after there's a stand, then everybody says, oh, wasn't that Alamo thing? Wasn't that great? <laughs> we'll remember it for centuries. But but you're a nutcase if you beforehand, you're a nutcase if you go there. Right. I think um, I, I can't even remember where this quote is from, but we we often quote you, and I don't know where you said it. Maybe you can clarify it for us. But you you once said that uh, desperate times call for faithful men and not for careful men. That the careful men come later and write the biographies of the faithful men, lauding them for their courage. And I think that's kind of yeah. what you're touching on now. That's what I'm touching. I was I was actually trying to think of that. And to be honest, I have no idea where I said that. I did say that. I, did. I wrote a thing sometime. <laughs> I wrote a thing sometime. But yeah, I did say that. And I do believe that. Yeah. And, and I'm, uh, if you look at the b- books behind me, I'm, I'm greatly indebted to the careful men, to the scribes and the scholars who write books that I'm, I benefit from. Right. But, at some, because, but that's ammo. Um, at some point, you, every war needs guys in the munitions factory, you know, yep. uh, you know, putting the, the ammo together, um, some guy writing, you know, coding a Bible search program. And he might say, well, what good am I doing? Well, pastors in the front lines or people who are doing what, you know, who are engaged in the fight, utilize these tools. We need to remember body life when we're involved in this also. Not everybody's a general, not everybody's in the front lines. Um, not everybody's doing the, so I, I was in, when I was in the Navy, I was on a submarine and this illustration occurred to me, you know, let's say we were at war 
and I went back and asked the cook what he's doing, he could answer me at two different levels. He could say, well, I'm, I'm cooking eggs. I'm, I'm making breakfast. And that would be quite true. Yeah. But it's also true that he's fighting communism. Right. Right. Because his contribution, the, the torpedo men, the people who are doing everything that they're doing need to eat and they eat the eggs that he's cooking. This is um, Paul's argument for uh, different gifts. Not everybody is doing the same thing. Yeah. So we ought not to be quick to judge someone who's not maybe doesn't have as high a profile online as you do. Yep. Um, because he, Obadiah, not the prophet Obadiah, but the Obadiah that served under Ahab, who was a wicked king, yep. Obadiah hid many prophets and saved their lives in a Schindler's List kind of thing. Yep. Um, so I don't want to be pronouncing on other people's stories like Aslan might say. Right. Um, that's good, actually. I just I just want to uh, poke on that a little bit and maybe uh, have you um, pull some of that out because I think there'd be a lot of our listeners right now who are part of a congregation um, where maybe the church is shut down. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe, um, you know, uh, there are uh, people who uh, they're, they're trying to figure out what it looks like for the guy sitting in the pew. What, is, what does it look like for me to be faithful? We've been talking about being the courageous people who speak truth, but the guy without a microphone, um, what would you say to him? So the first thing I'm hearing you say is understand that, whatever task is in front of you is part of the war as well. Do that, do that right. well, right? If that's right. changing diapers, washing dishes, or going to work and putting food on the table and giving faithfully to your church, that's part of it. What other advice would you have for the guy who's sitting there saying, how do I get involved in the fight, pastor? Right. So I would say if I could press my analogy a little bit uh, further, um, let's say you go back and ask the cook on the submarine what he's doing. And he says, well, we can't all fight communism. Uh, I'm back here in the kitchen uh, cooking eggs. And I say, but you're not cooking eggs. <laughs> where, where are the eggs? I came back, I came down here for breakfast. Where are the, where are the <laughs> eggs? Um, so there are, let's say you have a pastor. I, I don't want to, I don't want to pronounce anything about pastor Schwartz in some state or province where I've never met him and their, their church is shut down. All right. I, I, if you said, would you condemn Pastor Schwartz? I would say not yet. I need to know more, uh, right? Let's say he shuts down, but this pastor visits everybody in his small church twice a week, right? He goes to their homes and he shares something from the word and he encourages them face to face, right? And, he, he, and he's doing that. I might disagree with his decision to not hold services, but I can see that he is seeking to be a faithful pastor. Mm. But if you have a if you have a board of elders or a pastor who just sort of puts up a sign, sorry, no church, no church, no pastoral care, no nothing because the provincial government or the state government won't let us meet. It, you don't you don't have the authority to let them tell you to quit being a shepherd. The sheep are still there. Yeah. The the you know the sheep still have needs they still have crises they still have family situations they and they still need to be pastored and if you say well the the government has said we can't all meet uh all together then i say so what are you doing to meet them all one one on one yeah why, why aren't you, you now that's the sort of thing where i would say 
if I'm talking to this fellow, I would admonish or rebuke him. I'd say, look, that's not what the Bible says a pastor is to be like. But if someone writes me and says, our elders want us to wear masks, right? Uh, would you condemn that? Well, I, that by itself, I don't have enough. I, prop, I, I, I disagree with it. I know that much. But I'm not prepared to go to war over it yet because I don't know all the circumstances. Right. Um, so uh, you touched on, I guess, uh, obviously one of the big things that's going on right now. And, uh, and I know even for our church and, you know, I, I feel like I'm a fairly well-read pastor and I've been trying to, you know, preach and teach and, and instill reform theology into our people. And then 2020 comes along, <laughs> kicks you in the side of the head. And, uh, you realize that maybe, um, this hasn't sunk down into the bones of everybody quite as much as you wanted it to or thought it had. And right. so, you know, there's all these churches who have not maybe thought through, haven't had good, solid teaching on things like sphere sovereignty, right? And so then they're, right. they're ill-equipped, whether it's as an elders board or as a church, to, um, to think properly through what's going on in the culture, so how, how would you, it, I'll say this in a, in a no quarter November kind of way for you, but how would you make, how, how would you encourage churches to make sure that they don't get caught with their pants down again? Yeah. So, um, I don't know any other, I don't know any way to do this other than by teaching all the time, right? You can't, if, let's say you, um, like many churches, they have a little 10-minute homily once a week. Well, that's like someone once said, sermonettes for Christianettes. If, if, you tried to study, if you tried to study biology that way, you would flunk the course. If you tried to prep for med school that way, you wouldn't make it, right? right? Uh, so you'd, they, there need to be meaty sermons on, on the Lord's Day, but you need to be publishing material, writing letters to your congregation, um, as it says in the book of Acts, they, they, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Mm. I think yeah. that that's our... Uh, so basically, when someone asks you a question, you can say, well, here's this book, or here's this booklet, or let me show you our book table. So, so basically, um, I believe that faithful pastoring in times like these require the people that are listening to you to be exposed to a torrent of information. Hmm. Now, not everybody in the congregation needs the entire torrent, but it needs to be enough of a torrent that whatever their situation, you've got something for them. Yeah. It's all across the waterfront. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, do you want to jump in there, Pudi? Yeah, it's funny. You just answered the question I was going to ask, which is how do we prepare in advance? Because you said earlier that like you you think that this could end up in even a shooting war between cultures so i was going to say how does the regular uh person in the in the pews prepare and so i think you just gave me a lot to think about in terms of just be well read and be well um stocked with ammo right. for when the fighting starts and buy a right. gun <laughs> and buy a gun <laughs> good luck on ammo yeah so um, so, um, and, and just to kind of, um, you wrote a wonderful book called empires of dirt a few years ago, 
And in that, you made some bold um, predictions, some bold um, thought experiments, um, saying that you thought that Western civilization was sort of on the brink of failure, that it was a house of cards ready to come down. And quite honestly, I think when you wrote that, there are probably a lot of people saying, wow, what an alarmist. Um, yeah. and, and, right. and now here we are. Here so, we so um, I mean, we're a day, we're recording this on the 5th. So, um, you know, what happens tomorrow, <laughs> January 6th right. with the presidential stuff? Um, I mean, this podcast might not even go out there, <laughs> but, um, know. you know, when, when you think now about what you wrote back then, help us um, just encourage us a little bit with what you had said about the collapse of Western civilization, the opportunity that it was. And one of the things that you said that I thought was very, very interesting was that there are essentially, if, if, the, if the house of cards that is sort of the Western culture um, collapses, there's only two kind of worldviews ready to pick it up. And you said right. it'll be either... A, a revived Christendom, or it'll be a, a Muslim state. And again, right. when I read that, and I, I don't, I don't consider myself easily spooked by things like that. But I, when I read it, I thought, Doug, you know, this, this one, you might be, I, you, you went a little too far on this one, Doug. Right. And and yet right. here we are. So so talk a little bit about what you see coming in 2021, and um, what does it look like for Christians to take it up? as you say in, in yeah. that book. Yeah, so the, um, one of the things that I think Christians need to learn, worldview thinking Christians need to learn, is that principles are pregnancies, okay? Okay. Um, principles are never static. Principles are pregnancies. And that means that ideas, as Richard Weaver said, have consequences. Yep. Ideas are always on a journey. They're always growing into something. Okay. Yep. And if you have an idea, if, if you have an idea that is this misshapen, crazy thing that some um, uh, new age crystal lady came up with that we're all green aliens or something that, that doesn't have, that's an idea that doesn't really have staying power. Yep. Okay. Um, we know that Christendom has staying power because of how long it's stayed. And we know that Islam has staying power because of how long it's stayed. Secularism is an experiment that began in earnest with the Enlightenment, yeah. but was, propped up, was propped up for the first half of its history by the, the remnants of Christendom. Yeah. Right? In, in fact, I would say a good deal of that propping lasted well up to the time of the First World War in the early 20th century. And then the 20th century, it's the secularists had a good run sort of all to themselves. Okay, okay. they could run this, this civilization the way they thought it ought to be run. And principles are pregnancies. They, ideas have consequences. Ideas will come to their inevitable destination. And, and with secularism, we are seeing that they don't know the difference between a boy and a girl. We know that, and, and, they tell us they tell us that you can't know the difference um, between a boy and a girl because of science, right? <laughs> that, that's where we've, that's where we've gotten. Yeah. We've had this in um, this pandemic, the lockdowns, the uh, just a frenzy of irrationality. And I go back to um, uh, Van Til again, who says that 
the secularist toggles, alternates between rationalism and irrationalism. And we are in the embracing irrationalism phase right now. And so I, I would say, okay, what are the only alternatives? Um, secularism is simply not going to work. It, th- this, is, uh, this is done. It's exhausted. And I, I think that once that collapses and you have the, I don't want to say a failed state, but let's say a failed culture. Um, that will be an opportunity for Christians to stand up and say, we have a proposal. And, and the proposal is we need to acknowledge to, altogether that Jesus is Lord and that he rose from the dead. Yeah. That's, that's our proposal. Why don't we all acknowledge that? And I don't think there's any other way uh, to rebuild anything. Right. Um, so oh, let me add, can I add one other thing? Yeah, please, please. Uh, years ago, I, I first, um, uh, this is probably 30, 30 plus years ago, I, I uh, picked up some uh, works by R.L. Dabney, who was a Confederate, um, he was chaplain to Stonewall Jackson and so on. But he, he wrote an essay on secularized education, objecting to public schools as they were just being formed. And so he wrote that this was after the war between the states, but it was still in the 19th century. And he said this. Christians then must prepare themselves for the following results. All Bibles, catechisms and prayers will ultimately be driven out of the schools. Right. All Bibles, catechisms and prayers will ultimately be driven out of the schools. And that's I that's where I encountered an early example of what I'm calling principles are pregnancies, right? He, he saw that they had adopted the myth of neutrality, the myth of objectivity in the public schools. And he said, there is no logical stopping point after that, other than driving Bibles, catechisms and prayers out of the schools. Modern Christians look at that. And and we say, there used to be catechisms in the schools, (laughs) Right. <laughs> there used to be there used to be Christian catechisms in public yeah. schools. Yeah, there yeah. were. And and I remember as a boy, I can remember the prayers, the last vestige of the prayers, yeah. but no Bibles and no catechisms. And everybody when you when you do worldview thinking this way, everybody thinks you've got the gift of prophecy, but it's not the gift of prophecy at all. It's principles are pregnancies. C.S. Lewis had the same ability. If you read that hideous strength, yeah. which was written in the 1940s, you can see him calling shot after shot. Well, I, I mean, I think it would be, um, I, I, I recently pulled out my space trilogy to reread that hideous strength um, after reading Klaus Schwab's book on COVID-19 and the Great Reset. And I thought, oh boy, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a scary juxtaposition right here. Um, but that's maybe another right. podcast for another day. Um, when, uh, when, when I hear you say things like, um, you know, civilization on the brink of collapse and, and who's ready to pick it up, I can't help but think that there have been a few times in history when there's been a big collapse. And mm-hmm. I'll use a sports metaphor where, you know, um, paganism fumbled the ball and the Christians weren't ready to pick it up and retrieve it. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, and, and you don't, you, you can just start with Constantine. 
Um, yeah. And uh, and so here's Constantine declares Rome a Christian nation, and uh, the Christians made a pretty quick mess of it all. So yeah. how do we how do we prepare ourselves to um, pick up the ball and run with it? So I would say, yes, um, I point to Constantine as one example of this. And the other prime historical example would be the Puritan uh, ascendancy in England after yep. the, Pur- the English Civil Wars. Yep. Um, so what happened was the old order collapsed, couldn't hold it together anymore, and then gave it to the Christians who were not quite ready for prime time. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so we weren't ready at the time of Constantine and we weren't ready in the Puritan revolution in the 1600s. But I will point out that even though we weren't ready, it was way, way better than what went before. Definitely. Right. And in other words, it was kind of ugly. We, I I would say, yeah, we won that football game, but we won ugly. (laughs) Okay. It's not the game you want repeated. Not yeah, you don't want to. You don't really want to look at the game film, uh, and it's the same with the the same with the Puritans. We won that one too, but we won ugly. Yeah. And I would like us to be learning over time to have our great triumphs to be less ugly than they've been in the in the past. But I do think that we have uh, many of the freedoms that we currently have that we're in the process of losing. We have them because of that Puritan revolution in um in england we still have them even though we're about ready to lose them and when it all happens again and the our the establishment uh collapses and we step into the into into the void and try to hold it together that'll be a good thing but it'll be way uglier you know i'll I'll die and go to heaven and say to the angels sorry about that (laughs) (laughs) um so it was still better yeah it was still better so let me summarize your application and then if you want to add to it you you can just so just so we're kind of finishing up our time with uh with a sort of um applicational sticking point um you know we're we're watching a collapse and uh the collapse is a good thing because it's uh Mm -hmm. it's secularism fumbling the ball that uh they never should have had in the first place um, but as as we see this collapse, you're you're calling the church to faithful fighting, faithful work, you know, change the diaper that's in front of you, preach the word in the pulpit that's in front of you, you know, um, be right. faithful with what you've been given, you know, battle the lions and the bears, um, waiting for your chance to take on the the giant. And and I, I guess I would say this is sort of what what scripture means when it says to wait on the Lord, right? Wait for that opportunity, be faithful, you know, battle, uh, fend the, the bears and lions off of your, your sheep. And when, when prime time presents itself, because you're delivering bread and cheese to your brothers on the front line and a Philistine comes out. So when, when the opportunity arises, um, pastors have been teaching thoroughly, right? You said a torrent of information ready for them to think through the culture. So you have these faithful churches full of faithful Christians who have studied and know the word of God and are waiting on the Lord to give them the opportunity to grab the ball. Right. And uh, you said it wonderfully. And the only thing I would add is your people need to see you living it out yourself. 
So uh, a good deal of what the a good deal of the um, the congregation's lack of panic is not going to be because you gave them a book that said don't panic. You gave them the book, but you they also see you not panicking. Right. Yeah, it's good. That's you want to you want to add anything to that, Chris? No, I just I was just going to say like. Um, it's funny how easy things get boiled down when you just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Like you just live out what you say you believe, just live that out. And people will generally follow if they believe, if they watch you do it, they'll follow you. Like Paul says, uh, be imitators, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I, I think like that's a good model of leadership. If we're leading in a godly way, our people will follow in a godly way. So. Amen. Yeah, that's good. Well, thanks so much for your time. Uh, thanks for suffering through some technical Absolutely. difficulties at the beginning, yeah. uh, Doug. We uh, we always enjoy our conversations with you. Um, if anybody's listening, we'll put in the show notes some links to places where you can follow um, Pastor Wilson's um, blogs, podcasts, all that kind of stuff. We, uh, we, we enjoy everything that he puts out. Uh, so thanks so much. Is there anything you'd like to sign off with, with in terms of where you want to direct people? Uh, no, most of the clearinghouse of the, what I'm up to can be found at my blog, dougwills.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so we much. For let, your, sorry, I, go ahead. Just, we won't let Big Eva um, give you an embargo anymore. We'll make sure you get out there. <laughs> okay, thank you. I, I don't know if anybody listens to us either, but for whatever that's worth. <laughs> All right, thanks so much for your time, Pastor Doug. Have a, thanks, have a wonderful Doug. day. Thanks for being with us. Great. God bless. See ya. You too.